Our scripture this morning uh, is going to be found in two passages, an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading. Uh, The Old Testament is Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9, and then 15 through 25. And then Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Some of you will immediately recognize that both of these passages have in unity uh, the biblical understanding of marriage. Reading from the English Standard Version translation. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then moving on down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field, but for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. Here are the words of the Apostle Paul, which are even more fundamentally the words of the living God. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now this morning I want to remind us that our uh, controlling theme is Christ and seeing Christ in all of the scriptures, being able to see Christ particularly in the Old Testament scriptures. Just as Jesus himself instructed his disciples, we remember the story in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus appears to two of his followers and properly explains to them everything that had happened in Jerusalem in the few days before. He opened up the scriptures to them and showed them that all of these things had to take place because he began with Moses and the prophets and explained all of the scriptures concerning himself. We know that Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they which speak about me. So what we're doing through this year is we're looking at various places in the Old Testament, really a kind of historical uh, approach through the Old Testament, so that we can be more attuned to reading the Old Testament from a New Testament perspective, reading the Old Testament, and every place that the New Testament would tell us and warrant us to see Christ, we would see Christ there. Not just the Messianic prophecies, of which there were hundreds and hundreds of those, but the New Testament points to Christ in the Old Testament in other kinds of ways, sometimes allegorically, sometimes typologically, sometimes symbolically. Um, in these different ways, we should be able to see and read the Old Testament and say, this is of Christ. This speaks of Christ in preparation. Uh, this speaks of Christ in Old Testament symbology, in terms of what Christ was coming to do, this tells us about our Savior. So that we can understand that all of Scripture is about Christ. If there's one theme from Genesis to Revelation, that theme is the person and the work of Christ. Now, so far we've been looking at creation, and today is going to be the last message uh, dealing with creation. As we come to the creation and establishment of the institution of marriage. Now, we've already read the two passages in Scripture that give us the warrant to connect Christ to the Old Testament in terms of marriage, because the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 quotes the most defining verse in all of the Old Testament concerning marriage. Paul says that this particular thing that I've just read to you, for this cause, or therefore, man will leave his father and mother, Hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm speaking in reference to Christ and the church. And so the large picture of what we're trying to say today, the main point of what we're trying to say, would be we need to make sure that we always are able to connect God's establishment and institution of marriage to the relationship that exists between Christ and 
the church. We live in a day in which marriage and the understanding of marriage is on the deepest and steepest decline that you can possibly imagine. As Christians, uh, are we going to follow the culture, um, be, on, be on the so-called right side of history, or are we going to follow Scripture and be on the right side of God? That's an important, significantly important issue. Very important for today. But, but how we once again re-embrace the biblical doctrine of marriage and see it from the New Testament perspective and see it from the perspective of what Paul says the connection is between Christ and marriage, Christ and the church and marriage, that's significant. We need to make sure that we properly understand and value the institution of marriage, even as we properly understand and value Christ in everything that he has done for the church. Now, over the last several weeks, we have found a helpful rubric to be this, uh, the idea of correction and the idea of connection and the idea of calling. And that really follows out. That rubric is not something I just invented. That's the rubric we find Paul endorsing to us in Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, Paul says, For all Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness. Now, if you look at those four things, you recognize that teaching, teaching the Old Testament scriptures would really associate itself with the connection that Paul makes between Christ and the Old Testament because he's teaching us about Christ in terms of the Old Testament. We would look at uh, our calling in terms of what Paul says in terms of training in righteousness. What is our calling as believers? Well, it's many things, but certainly central to our calling as Christians is to be trained in the righteousness of God. But what about correction? Well, that's the very middle part of what Paul says there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he speaks about correction and reproving. Those are two sides of the same coin. You can never correct the way people are and correct the way people think and correct the way people believe and act and behave unless you also reprove certain things. You've got to say no to these things and yes to these things. And so uh, this rubric is biblical. This rubric is what we've been following. This rubric is helpful to understand even what's going on in the scriptures that we're looking at today. So we begin with correction. That is to say, we've been saying that the story of creation, one of its significant aspects, one of the significant reasons for it it is correcting the way the people of God are supposed to think. Now, if you had been uh, an Israelite during the days of Moses, you, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, in fact, your families for hundreds of years earlier would have been immersed in a pagan culture, the pagan culture of Egypt. That would influence you. It's like today we say, are we a Christian nation? No, we're not a Christian nation. We once were a very Christian nation. We are not a Christian nation any longer, and we as Christians should stop saying so. It was our heritage. It isn't what we are today. It really isn't. That has been lost. And we shouldn't kid ourselves about it. The greater influences of our culture today are pagan. Satan uses paganism, and he's always used paganism, to destroy the people of God, but also to destroy mankind. Now, we see this very specifically and concretely as to what 
God is doing through Moses because God says several times, what I'm doing for you, I'm doing so that you won't imitate the people you came from, the Egyptians, and you won't imitate the people you're going to be among, the Canaanites. Leviticus chapter 18. You can turn there. I'm only going to read the first five verses because verses 6 through verses 23 or so lay out all the ways in which paganism under the instrumentality of the devil targeted the institution of marriage that God had created and distorted it and perverted it and destroyed it in all sorts of ways. So Leviticus chapter 18, I'm going to read to you uh, just the first five verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they did in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall, not, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, what are these statutes of Egypt and the statutes of Canaan that he's talking about? If you read through this passage, you'll see a detailed description of family incest. To which God says, no. If you continue reading, you'll see things like adultery, to which God says, no. And sister brides, to which God says, no. You'll see child sacrifice, no. And you will see homosexuality, to which God says, no. And you'll see bestiality, to which God says, no. You think about our culture today. Has the paganism of Egypt and the paganism of Canaan gone away? No, it hasn't. It has always been the case that at the heart of paganism is attack against the institution of marriage. Why? Well, if marriage, as we shall see, represents, symbolizes, models, as an analogy for Christ and the church, of course it would be something the devil hates. It would be something that the devil deeply hates. And so we see all these ways in which the institution of marriage was corrupted and destroyed and distorted by the ancient people in the ancient days who did not know the truth and the word of the living God. Now, we look at then the creation of marriage as we find it in Genesis chapter 2 as it's described in detail. But of course, it's also mentioned in chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28, because there God lays out when he creates man, male and female, he says to them and blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So implicitly in Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28, is the institution of marriage. Explicitly in chapter 2, we find the institution of marriage. And how do we know this is marriage? Well, I'll just rest my case on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> because in Matthew chapter 19, in those verses, in a controversy with, with the Pharisees of his day, 
He answered the question about divorce by going back to Genesis 1 and going to Genesis 2. And essentially, if you're talking about divorce, you're talking about marriage. And Jesus goes back to those passages and says, from the beginning, it was not so. And so he makes it very clear that Genesis 1 and 2 are combined. They're a unity. He makes it very clear that this is the establishment of marriage. He makes it very clear that it's God who established that it's not human beings. What God has joined together, let no man ever separate is God's word. Now, we find, though, as we look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and think about marriage, well, actually, let me say this. I don't think you can exhaust everything that God says about marriage here in terms of what is stated explicitly, what is stated implicitly, and what are the applications. It's profound, again and again and again. And of course, when the New Testament brings in the relationship between Christ and the church, there's so much more. But at least we can look at five key ideas that we find in Genesis 1 and 2 about marriage in terms of which God established. Sort of five big principles that God was using to correct the pagans and to properly correct and reprove the Israelites themselves and then, of course, to train them in righteousness through this teaching. So think about this, Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And it goes on to talk about dominion, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blesses them and tells them to be fruitful and multiply and so forth. So the very first thing we see is this. God created marriage, man and woman, male and female marriage, in order to mirror his image. He created the human race as male and female in order to be bearers of his image, divine image bearers. Well, what does an image do? Well, it reflects the thing of which it is an image of. And so God is creating Adam and Eve not as just separate individuals who are going to go their own way. As chapter 2 makes it very clear, he creates them for the intentional purpose of marriage. And out of chapter 1 we see, well, this is so that in the marriage covenant, in the marriage bond, in the marriage relationship, Adam and Eve, husband and wife, man and woman, would be able to mirror the very image of God. Now, there's a lot... A lot going on there. But we can't spend the whole time on that. So let's go on to another principle. We also see in Genesis 1.28 where it says, so be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, what is that all about? Well, it's the fact that God gave to Adam and Eve, to the human race, the responsibility to, to multiply his image. Uh, the grand picture, I, I cannot tell you how many different theologians, when you read them and they talk about what's going on in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, as they say, God created human beings in his own image so that they would multiply and be replicas of his image all throughout the world that God had given to them. So that was one of the primary principles and purposes of marriage was so that there would be a multiplication of God's image that they would bear fruit and multiply. Now, we also see the last book of the Old Testament emphasizing this. When God is, is bringing his case against Israel, the Jews, because they were not doing well with marriages. They were divorcing their, their Jewish wives. They were ma- marrying pagan wives, uh, all of this. And so God rebukes them 
And so in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, God says this. Has not God made them one, speaking of marriage, you know, leaving, cleaving, one flesh? Has God made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself and your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. So the, the, the intentionality of God in terms of marriage is to multiply the image of God in the image bearers that would be created. And we know the fall truly, truly messed up what God had designed at creation. So think about this for a moment. What word do you use when you talk about children? Do you talk about reproduction or do you talk about procreation? Now, I want to tell you that more and more younger people and more and more of the culture think in terms of reproduction. And they use that term all of the time. But do you know why older Christians and older theologians abhorred the idea of reproduction? Because it took out of it the fact that God creates through us image bearers, procreation. It is the creation of a new being that is made in the image of God. And I want to encourage you, the language you use, the language as a Christian that you use, is significant as to how you think. And if you understand that secularism moves in the direction of reproduction, which demotes us to the level of animals, animals reproduce. No, human beings procreate. God uses us to procreate new image bearers. It gives you a holier view of human beings. It gives you a holier view of human sexuality and the act that is supposed to be preeminently confined to marriage. There's a holiness involved in human sexuality because it's the means by which God creates those who bear his image. So the multiplication of godly images. Now, of course, the pagans didn't believe that. The pagans today don't believe that. There's nothing special or sacred about human sexuality today among pagans. And that's a brokenness, and that's an attack upon marriage and an attack upon God. Well, thirdly, we see that uh, the purpose of marriage was to manage God's creation. Genesis 1, 28, the second half. So they were told to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it and to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the ground. So we're, we're reminded here that God gave to Adam and Eve, the first couple, this great stewardship over God's creation. They were to manage God's creation. And Again, when you think about it, chapter 2, God puts Adam in a garden of Eden, which means the whole world was not a garden. Nobody who has studied this says, oh yeah, the whole world was a garden. No, actually not. The rest of the world was not a garden. It's just here in Eden, and in the east of Eden, there was this garden that Adam and Eve were put in. What was their job then? What was the job of Adam and Eve's children? Well, if they had anything to do, it was to be those who would reproduce what God had done in the garden by making gardens everywhere. Not only that, but the most recent strong teaching about the Garden of Eden says this garden was actually a temple. It was the very presence where God had come to dwell. 
And therefore, as God multiplied, as God wanted image bearers to be multiplied, he wanted his representation of where he would be throughout the entire earth to be multiplied in terms of other gardens being created where God himself would dwell with his people. All of this tied into the institution of marriage. We also see that God designed Adam and Eve in order to mutually complete each other. Look at Adam's response to Eve. She's, after looking at all the animals and God declaring, it's not good that the man should be alone, and there's no, among all the animals, any helper fit suitable for him. Oh, by the way, remember in Genesis 1, 31, God looks at all that he's created and says, behold, it is very good, the end of the sixth day. Do you realize that on the sixth day, before, at the end, before the end of the day, for the first time in all of creation, he said there's something that's not good? He said concerning Adam's solitary existence at that point, this is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. And so God answers that deficiency in Adam's life by creating a complement for him, someone who would be, quote, fit for him. And Adam recognizes this, and he says, Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then Moses, as the author, writes and says, Ah, for that reason, man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Because they complement each other, because they fit one another. In every way, from anatomically to emotionally to spiritually, God designed man and woman to be together in the covenant of marriage. And most of us who are married as men would say, and rightly so, we can point to our better half. Because we think of our wives as one with us. We think of ourselves as only half there if our wife isn't there. We think this way. We think this way. It's the way God designed it to be. To have that deep sense that we complement Fulfill, finish, complete each other. Now, the fifth principle that we find is actually really coming from the New Testament, and that is that marriage was designed to model Christ's relationship with the church. And we're going to go there in just a moment, but let's sum up for a moment what was the corrective notions and ideas that, that God is giving through Moses, that Moses is giving to the people of God so when they go into the promised land, they won't fall back into those pagan ways that are always designed to be destructive of marriage. Well, you know, it's God designs marriage to be an exclusive and unique covenant between a husband and a wife, between a man and a woman. It's, there's exclusivity there. There's no sharing of this relationship and the intimacies of this relationship. It is holy, it is godly, it is to be protected in every possible way. Well, in a godly possible way. It's not like 
Peter, Peter, pumpkin shell. Had a wife and couldn't keep her. Put her in a pumpkin shell there, he kept her. No, that's not the godly way of doing this. It's the godly way is to protect your wife in every way, for a wife to protect her husband in every way, but all the ways that are godly. I know I'm getting off track when my wife shakes her head. Okay, now, here's what we've also got to remember. God created marriage for all of mankind. And when God was telling Israel... This is what must be. It was for the blessing and benefit of Israel. Now, of course, Israel was to be a light to the nations. But this is for the blessing and benefit of Israel. We need to remember that everything God says about marriage has never changed. There can be no, nothing good about marriage if it's not according to God. And even today... God's message about marriage, God's word about marriage is ultimately what will bless and benefit all human beings. Now we go on to the connection then with the New Testament. That connection is made in Ephesians chapter 5. We've looked at the whole passage here in terms of reading it. But notice first of all, verses 22, 23, and 24, that Paul is going to address wives. Now, we've read it. I just want to point out verse 23. The key point of the analogy between Christ and the church is found in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body, and is himself the Savior. So Paul is saying that the covenant of marriage, that is God's creation pattern of husband and wife, truly mirrors the covenant relationship of Christ and the church. Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. He is its savior. Now, uh, there's a lot of things that, that, that could be said about all of that, but I'm not going to say any of them. Because I think what's most important for us today is to look at what Paul says to husbands, verses 25 to 32. Because the point, that, the point of seeing Christ in the Old Testament is to actually see Christ and the person and work of Christ. But look at what Paul says in this much longer section where Paul is teaching husbands that as Jesus is the Savior and the Redeemer of the church, for the church, look at how he was. Husbands, you're supposed to be that way. So, Jesus is spoken of here in terms of his love, his self-sacrifice, his setting of his own bride, the church, apart, his sanctifying the church, his bride, by the word of God. So that tells us then what's the main purpose of a husband. It doesn't say breadwinner here. That's important. That's not where Paul places his emphasis. He says the main purpose of a husband, when you look at it, is this. To be used of God to enable your wife to become everything that God intends the wife to be. Because that states exactly what Jesus Christ did. We were broken, destroyed sinners. God had a great design for us 
which he accomplished by the sacrifice of Christ, by the love of Christ, by Christ coming into this world and becoming incarnate, by Christ having our sins laid upon him, by Christ sanctifying us by his blood, by Christ having the Holy Spirit cause us to be renewed after his own image so that ultimately we would be to the glory of God. That was the great work of Christ to enable the church to become everything that God intends the church to be for all glory, to give all glory to God. Husbands, that is the big purpose that Paul says husbands are to have in the covenant of marriage. All that Christ did to nourish and cherish the church was so that he could present the church to himself in glorious splendor, verse 27. In other words, Christ truly enabled the church to become all that God intends for the church to be. So, how is that going to be worked out? Verse 28, Paul centers his thought in this way because he says in verse 28, in the same way, that is, do this like Jesus did this. Follow the pattern we see in Christ. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies because that's just the way Christ loved his own body the church now then Paul goes on to give the explicit connection to Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 so he's making his point even more strongly he's making it explicit so in chapter 5 verse 30 he quotes for this reason or therefore a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul takes that passage in the Old Testament that defines most specifically the covenant of marriage, and then Paul goes on to say, but this is a profound mystery. I am speaking about Christ and the church. So when God establishes marriage at the beginning of creation, God had a model in mind. And the model that God had in mind between a husband and a wife was God's own mindful model of Christ and the church. It's not what Jesus does models the church. It's what the church does is supposed to model Christ and his relationship to his people, to the body. That's why in the Old Testament, Christ, by the way, who is the God of the Old Testament, we've already seen that, is described as the husband of Israel. And you can see an explicit reference to that in Ezekiel chapter 16. Uh, That's why in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, we read that coming out of heaven, chapter 19, is going to come this glorious bride, the church, prepared for the Lamb. The bride has made herself ready, Luke 19, 7, excuse me, Revelation 19, 7 and 8. The bride has made herself ready. The bride of Christ. So the implication in terms of what Paul writes is this. You can't read the New Testament Genesis story about the creation of marriage without thinking about the relationship between God and Israel, Christ and the church. Which means then, 
we need to model our own marriages the way God has designed marriage to be, to exhibit and to manifest the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, of course, that's leading right into the third point, calling. Scripture would speak to us as training us in righteousness, how we're supposed to live in accordance with the biblical view of marriage. So, two main ideas would be this. First, we must believe in marriage the way God has defined it and not the way culture has distorted it. We must truly believe in marriage as God has defined it. And we have to believe several things about it. We have to believe, first of all, it's from the standpoint of everything we know about human beings, it's the best place for human sexuality. But according to God's law, it's the exclusive place for human sexuality. We have to believe that. We also need to believe, because this is being lost terribly by our culture, that it's the best place for the nurture and raising of children, that next generation. We also need to see this. We need to be wise enough to see that the fall and decline and destruction of marriage really spells any number of irreversible harms to the next generation. We've got to see this. I mean, the United States Centers for Disease Control and other things keep incredible numbers of statistics about what happens when children come out of non-traditional homes. Now, that's not every case. Praise God for tremendous stories of great redemption out of broken lives and broken families and broken marriages. But the statistics are very clear. As we break the bond of marriage, we break the children affected by that bond. The second thing, then, out of this passage, what is our calling, training, and righteousness? We need to practice and we need to live out biblical marriage. Now, that means we've got to take God's word seriously, but we also need to seek God's help tremendously in order to do so. So wives, I'll leave it to you to work out what verses 22, 23, and 24 mean in terms of relationships with husbands. But I'll say this, because Paul says directly far more to husbands than he says to the wives. Three times. So obviously this is the key. Three times Paul says, love your wife. Love your wife. Love your wife. Do so with the same kind of love that Jesus has demonstrated toward us. That's the standard. That's the goal. That's how we're supposed to do it. Now, let me close with the all-important gospel principle. Out of everything that Jesus has called us to do, and God, our Savior, is serious about obedience. We should never think that grace cancels obedience. He's serious about obedience. But the truth is, obedience can never happen apart from two things. 
the work of Christ for you and the work of Christ in you. Jesus summed it up by saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. So in every place where God calls upon men to love their wives as Christ loved the church, we have to recognize this is a a truly unnatural calling because it's counter to the selfishness that lives within our human hearts. And therefore, we've got to say, Lord Jesus, by your grace, by your help, by working in my heart. And by the way, Jeff referred to his wife, that evil wife, that evil No, it's the evil Jeff <laughs> that we're talking about here. And Jeff knows this. I know this. All of us men know this. We are not the men we ought to be. Only Christ can give us the grace to love our wives as he has loved the church. But let's not, men, say, well, you know, I'm just a sinful guy. No. Yeah, you're a sinful guy, but you have a great Savior. So trust in a great Savior to increasing you give you more of what you need to have to love your wife as Christ has loved the church. Conclusion. How did Jesus define that love? What does it mean to love your wife as Christ loved the church? Well, there is a great passage in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, where Jesus is talking especially to James and John and to their mother about why James and John can't sit at his right hand in, in the, in the uh, kingdom to come. They're thinking about leadership and importance and headship and significance in a very ungodly, worldly way. So Jesus is going to correct them. This is how he corrects them, beginning at verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would first be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The world looks at leadership and headship according to the dictum, the will to power. Jesus looks at leadership and headship as the will to serve. We can only be godly men doing the godly thing in marriages if we ask the Lord Jesus Christ to give to us the will to serve. Amen. Father, we pray that you might be gracious to us And we would pray, Father, in a day in which so many of the culture think that what is broken is masculinity. We look and we see that it's marriages that are broken. That the destruction in our culture has begun in the relationship between husband and wife. Father, as Christians, help us to pray for stronger marriages. As men, help us to truly, Lord, desire godly marriages and help us to reject everything that might smack of toxic masculinity and instead give us Jesus' masculinity. Not the will to power, but the will to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.